Human beings are strange creatures. All of us. For example, how often we manage to make mountains out of molehills and molehills out of mountains. We make a world of an atom and an atom of a world. We make much of little and little of much. We can go almost crazy with excitement over something that seems miraculous, but ignore miracles that are much greater. You remember the first cosmonauts. Their experience was a miracle indeed. How excited we all were at their exploits. Taking about 89 minutes to go around the world, travelling at 18,000 miles an hour. And yet there's a greater miracle that few of us think about much, unless we're in real trouble, that is. A miracle whereby we can travel to the centre of the universe at the speed of thought. The miracle of prayer. But you may answer me, prayer? I don't need to pray. I can look after myself. My friends, you can't. We're not self-sufficient. Not in a world where microbes are stronger than man. A world where sorrow continually waits. Where death stalks each one of us with violence. And besides, who doesn't know that an aroused conscience is like a den of lions? To pretend we need no help, no refuge, is proud folly. The non-Christian may say, well, doesn't the devil look after his own? The answer is, he doesn't care about his own. But what about science? Hasn't that proved that the heavens are vacant? Isn't it true that the Russian cosmonauts boasted they hadn't found God in their journey? My dear friends, when rocks rush to build a Taj Mahal, and when an ink bottle tipped over writes a Bible, then we can believe that the world made itself and that the heavens are empty. Carlyle was correct when he said, Prayer is and remains the native and deepest impulse of the soul of man. Harry Emerson Fosdick, in his book on prayer, said that our justification for calling prayer natural may be found in part in the universality of it. In some form or other, it's found everywhere, in all ages and among all peoples. The most discouraging circumstances do not crush it, and theories of the universe directly antagonistic do not prevent it. Buddhism, a religion theoretically without a god, ought logically to exclude prayer. But in countries where Buddhism is dominant, prayer is still present. Confucius, a good deal of an agnostic, urged his disciples not to have much to do with the gods. And today Confucius is himself a god and millions worship him. Before the tendency to pray, all barriers go down. The traveller climbs the foothills of the Himalayas, and among the cons of North India he hears the prayer, O Lord, we know not what's good for us. Thou knowest what it is, for it we pray. The archaeologist goes back among the Aztec ruins and reads their prayer and affliction. O merciful Lord, let this chastisement with which thou hast visited us give us freedom from evil and from folly. The historian finds the Greek world typical of all ancient civilizations, at least in this, that prayer is everywhere. Xenophon begins each day's march with prayer. Pericles begins every address with prayer. The greatest of Greek orations, Demosthenes on the crown, and the greatest of Greek poems, the Iliad, are opened with prayer. When from the superstitious habits of the populace one turns to the most elevated and philosophic spirits to see what they'll say, 
He hears Plato. Every man of sense, before beginning an important work, will ask help of the gods. And turning from Plato's preaching to his practice, he reads this beautiful petition. King Zeus, grant us the good whether we pray for it or not, but evil keep from us, though we pray for it. If today one crosses the borders of Christianity into Mohammedanism, not only will he find formal prayer five times daily when the bell calls, but he'll read descriptions of prayer like this from a Sufi. There are three degrees in prayer. The first is when it's only spoken by the lips. The second is when with difficulty, by a resolute effort, the soul succeeds in fixing its thought on divine things. The third is when the soul finds it hard to turn away from God. And if from all others one looks to the Hebrew people, with what unanimous ascription do they say, O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. A man is cutting himself off from one of the elemental functions of human life when he denies in himself the tendency to pray. At one end of the scale, according to the poet, in even savage bosoms there are longings, yearnings, strivings for the good they comprehend not, and their feeble hands and helpless, groping blindly in the darkness, touch God's right hand in that darkness and are lifted up and strengthened. Or at the other end of the scale, we have Coleridge saying, the act of praying is the very highest energy of which the human mind is capable. And President Harper of the University of Chicago on his deathbed prays, may there be for me a life beyond this life, And in that life may there be work to do and tasks to accomplish. If in any way a soul has been injured or a friend hurt, may the harm be overcome if it is possible. The human soul never outgrows prayer. So my friends, I think we should admit that prayer is either the primary fact or the worst illusion of life. If it's not based on the reality of a listening God, we should surrender today to chaos and to night. But remember, where there's no God, everything is permitted. Everything and anything done to you or by you. And that means hell, my friend. Years ago, many years ago, there was something else that people thought of as a miracle, a journeying in the opposite direction to the cosmonauts. I refer to the deep-sea divers. You remember the deep-sea diver also had a great bell-like covering over his head and a rubberized canvas suit and iron-weighted boots. It's interesting how man seems to love to get away from his native habitat. Aren't we happy here? But both cosmonauts and the deep-sea divers really got no further away from this world than a circling fruit fly gets away from its fruit. But by the miracle of prayer, one can enter heaven itself. The cosmonaut found that at the end of his flight, the earth no longer held the same pull on his body, and that the physical things of the heavens became more real to his sight. But by prayer, earth loses its pull on our spirits, and heavenly realities become wonderfully real to our spiritual side. For the cosmonaut and the diver, there was one element more important than the thrills of their adventure, and that was oxygen. Think, for example, of the deep-sea diver. As he went down and down, the pressure increased, 
And he needed an equal pressure of air from above within his suit. If by accident that stream of air was cut off, the diver's body was squeezed into the rigid helmet. Now each of us is like a deep sea diver. At birth we're launched from a comfortable resting place into the mysterious world of pressures. There's the pressure of trouble. Nobody's without it. There's the pressure of inadequacy, and that's for all of us, of ignorance, of public opinion. And we all have inward pressures also, the pressure of wrong desires, of warring motives. No wonder that over the years of the 20th century, one out of every two beds has been occupied by a mental patient in hospital wards. No wonder that one in ten people at some stage in their life have a nervous breakdown. No wonder then that scripture says to us in Luke 18 and verse 1 that Jesus said men ought always to pray and not to faint. You know, my friends, a man may preach from false motives. A man may write books and make fine speeches and seem diligent in good works and yet be a Judas Iscariot. But a man seldom goes into his private room and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is in earnest. The Lord himself has set his stamp on prayer as the best proof of true conversion. When he sent Ananias to Saul in Damascus, he gave him no other evidence of his change of heart than this. Behold, he prayeth. My friends, do you pray? What is prayer? Prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. It's the taking hold of a divine hand. <clears throat> it's a linking up with the source of all wisdom. It's emerging into the heart of infinite love to find healing for the wounds of life. It's communion with God. There was a Russian peasant who was looking at a picture of Christ intently. And he said, I'm looking at him and he's looking at me. That's a good definition of prayer. Looking at God to see him changes everything else. And when we see that he looks upon us in love, that awakens our love, not only for him, but for all others. That's prayer, my friends. Looking at him, letting him look at us. Every morning, lean thine arms a while upon the window sill of heaven and gaze upon thy Lord. Then with the vision in thy heart, turn strong to meet thy day. Does prayer bring real help? Or does it merely react upon us psychologically? You may have heard of Baron Munchausen, that uh, mythological character who in China, when in a deep pit, pulled on his pigtail to get himself out. Is prayer just like that? No, my friend, it's not. Do you remember last century, the story of Hudson Taylor, that missionary to China, whose prayers brought men from all over the world to enter every province, first singly, then in tens, then in scores, and then by the hundreds. When he was a young man, he'd forsaken the religion of his parents. His mother went to the west coast of England and was impressed while at lunch to rise from her chair and go to the guest room to pray. And she prayed there for a boy, Hudson, and resolved she wouldn't leave the room till she had the assurance that he was converted. Back on the other side of Eng England, 
Hudson was wandering in his father's library, looking idly for something to read. And at last he came upon a tract and decided it would have a story at the beginning and a moral at the end, that he'd take the first and leave the second. But as he read the story, he came across the term, the finished work of Christ, and asked himself, what was finished? And the Spirit of God convicted him that it meant the atonement of Christ for his sins and the sins of the whole world, that Christ had finished the work of reconciling men to God, and that all men could now preach with, could approach now with joy and with gladness, for their sins had been forgiven at the cross. And Hudson was converted by his mother's prayer on the other side of England. Do you remember Dr. Bernardo? All through England and other parts of the British Commonwealth are the Bernardo homes for children. Established by prayer, my friends. Just prayer. And the responses to prayer. George Mueller, have you read his book? A million and a half in answer to prayer. He never asked any man for anything, but he fed thousands upon thousands of orphans. Remember John Wesley? England was ripe for a revolution like that of France. But Wesley was converted and began each morning with prayer at four to pray for England. And England was transformed in the Methodist revival. Martin Luther, from the secret place of prayer came the power of the Reformation. No, prayer is not just psychological, it's real. It brings down the power of heaven into our weak lives. Does God always answer prayer? Yes, indeed. But he doesn't always answer yes. He can answer yes, he can answer no, or he can answer wait a while. Why does he answer no? My friends, you and I often desire God's omnipotence, but we lack his omniscience. We want all his power, but we don't have all his knowledge. Not everything we want is good for us, my friends. We don't understand one ten millionth about God's work in creation. Why should we suppose we can understand one ten millionth of his work in providence? We have to trust him where we can't trace him. Sometimes God's no just means not yet. Other times it means it would not be good for you. Sometimes the no is in us rather than in God. Psalm 66 and verse 18 says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. And Proverbs 28 and verse 9 says, If I turn away my ear from hearing the law, then even my prayer will be an abomination. The rich young ruler prayed to Christ, but Christ could not say yes to him. There was a no in the rich young ruler. He was wedded to idols. Saul sought God, but God answered him not, because Saul too had become an idolater. Well, how should I pray? When should I pray? About what should I pray? One writer has summed it up beautifully in these words. Keep your wants, your joys, your sorrows, your cares and your fears before God. You cannot burden him. You cannot weary him. He who numbers the hairs of your head is not indifferent to the wants of his children. The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. His heart of love is touched by our sorrows and even by our utterance of them. Take to him everything that perplexes the mind. Nothing's too great for him to bear, for he holds up worlds. He rules over all the affairs of the universe. 
Nothing that in any way concerns our peace is too small for him to notice. There's no chapter in our experience too dark for him to read. No perplexity too difficult for him to unravel. No calamity can befall the least of his children. No anxiety harass the soul. No joy cheer. No sincere prayer escape the lips of which our Heavenly Father is unobservant or in which he takes no immediate interest. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. The relations between God and each soul are as distinct and full as though there were not another soul upon the earth to share his watch care, not another soul for whom he gave his beloved son. So there's no time or place in which it's inappropriate to offer up a petition to God. There's nothing that can prevent us from lifting up our hearts in the spirit of earnest prayer. In the crowds of the street, in the midst of a business engagement, we may send up a petition to God and plead for divine guidance, as did Nehemiah when he made his request before King Artaxerxes. We should have the door of the heart open continually. Our invitation going up that Jesus may come and abide as a heavenly guest in the soul. Though there may be a tainted, corrupted atmosphere around us, we need not breathe its miasma. We may live in the pure air of heaven. We may close every door to impure imaginings and unholy thoughts while lifting the soul into the presence of God through sincere prayer. Those whose hearts are open to receive the support and blessing of God will walk in a holier atmosphere than that of earth. They will have constant communion with heaven. Let me read you what Luther said on prayer. Many people think that prayer is just talking and talking and talking. Luther said this, Faith quickly gets through telling what it wants. Indeed, it does so with a sigh that the heart utters and that words can neither attain nor express. As Paul says, the spirit prays. Because he knows that God is listening to him, he has no need of such everlasting twaddle. That's how the saints prayed in the scriptures, like Elijah, Elisha, David and others, with brief but strong and powerful words. This is evident in the book of Psalms where there's hardly a single psalm that has a prayer more than five or six verses long. Therefore, the ancient church fathers have said correctly that many long prayers are not the way. They recommend short, fervent prayers, where one sighs toward heaven with a word or two, as is quite often possible in the midst of reading or writing or doing some other task. The way to pray is to use few words, but to give them a great and deep meaning or intention. Often the fewer the words, the better the prayer. The more the words, the poorer the prayer. Few words and much meaning, that's Christian. But many words and little meaning, that's heathenish. They're remarkable words of Luther. And they undo many a misunderstanding. We should pray as we work, pray as we walk, pray as we begin each new project. Breathe out towards God. Prayers like breathing. That's the only way we can pray without ceasing. Let's think on the Lord's Prayer for a few minutes. Well, that's an example of true prayer. We've said it from childhood, but have we understood it? Some things stand out immediately. It's not a selfish prayer. We have to pray our Father. And it has a true hierarchy of values because it begins with requests for God's kingdom before it starts on our kingdom. William Parley, centuries ago, commented on the Lord's Prayer like this. He said, For solemn thoughts, for fixing the attention on a few great points, for suitableness to every condition, for sufficiency, for conciseness, without obscurity, 
for the weight and importance of its petitions, the Lord's Prayer is without an equal and without a rival. The Lord's Prayer places God before us as our Father, giving and forgiving, guiding and guarding. When we utter this prayer, we profess to come before God as children, our Father, as worshippers, hallowed be thy name, as subjects, thy kingdom come, as servants, thy will be done, as suppliants, give us, as sinners, forgive us, as weak and frail, lead us not into temptation, as helpless in danger, deliver us from evil, as fully trusting in his all-sufficiency for time, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, as confiding for eternity, forever. Amen. So let it be. My friends, can we pray the Lord's Prayer truly? Can we? I cannot say our in our Father. If I live in a watertight spiritual compartment, or if I think that there's a special place in heaven reserved for just my denomination. I cannot say Father if I do not demonstrate that relationship in my daily life. I cannot say which art in heaven if I'm so occupied with the earth that I'm laying up no treasure up there. I cannot say hallowed be thy name if I who am called by his name am not holy. I cannot say thy kingdom come if I'm not doing all in my power to hasten its coming. I cannot say thy will be done if I'm questioning, resentful or disobedient. I cannot say on earth as it is in heaven if I'm not prepared to devote my life here to his service. I cannot say give us this day our daily bread if I'm living on past experience or if I'm an under-the-counter shopper. I cannot say forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them the trespass against us if I harbour a grudge against anyone. I cannot say, lead us not into temptation, if I deliberately place myself or remain in a position where I am likely to be tempted. I cannot say, deliver us from evil, if I do not accord the king the right to guide me in fighting in the spiritual realm with the weapon of prayer. I cannot say, thine is the kingdom, if I do not yield the disciplined obedience of a loyal subject. I cannot say thine is the power if I fear what men may do or what my neighbours may think. I cannot say thine is the glory if I'm seeking glory for myself. And I cannot say forever and ever if my horizon is bounded by the things of time. I cannot say amen if I do not also add cost what it may. For to say this prayer honestly will cost everything. My friends, when we see that Jesus gave everything for us, then and then only will we be prepared to give everything for him. That's why it's so important to look long and often at the cross. Let me take a parable from Christ on prayer. I'm reading from Luke chapter 11, where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And he told this story. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. A friend of mine's arrived on a journey. I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, Don't bother me. The door's now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he'll not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, 
Yet because of his importunity, he'll rise and give him whatever he asks. And I tell you, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. Now, my friends, there are some things to learn in this story about prayer. Why pray? Because we have inadequate resources. That's why this man went to his friend. Why pray? Because we do have a friend. No use knocking at a vacant door. But who is this man that's so churlish and grudging and getting up from his bed to answer the request? Why, that's God. But is God churlish and grudging? No, my friends. This is a much more parable. If this sleepy-headed and sour-tempered man will at last yield to repeated requests, how much more will our Heavenly Father, who is not sleepy nor churlish? Now, the story does raise some questions. Under what circumstances can I refuse to take no for an answer? Why does God put me under the necessity of knocking at his door a second time? My friends, if it's a case of necessity, continue knocking. This man was asking for bread, not just strawberries. In a case of urgency, this was at midnight. And particularly if our praying is for something that's not just selfish, this man was seeking help for somebody else. And as for the other one, God sometimes compels us to knock many times in order that we may learn our utter dependence upon him. To teach us to cultivate a meek and patient and submissive spirit. God isn't a cosmic bellboy. Sometimes he forces us to wait so we'll suitably value the boon when at length we receive it. Lord, what a change within us. One short hour spent in thy presence will prevail to make. What heavy burdens from our bosoms take. What parched grounds refresh as with a shower. We kneel and all around us seems to lower. We rise and all the distant and the near stands forth in sunny outline, brave and clear. We kneel how weak, we rise how full of power. Why therefore should we do ourselves this wrong? Or others, that we are not always strong, that we are ever overborne with care, that we should ever weak or heartless be, anxious or troubled, when with us is prayer, and joy and strength and courage are with thee. If radio's slim fingers can pluck a melody from night and toss it over a continent or sea, if the petalled white notes of a violin are blown across the mountains or of the city's din, if songs like crimson roses are culled from thin blue air, why should mortals wonder if God hears prayer? May I leave with you our Lord's admonition, men ought always to pray and not to faint. God bless you, my friends.